0: <laughs> y'all should have waited man okay um, man no the message today is titled real love and spoiler alert it doesn't get more real than Jesus' love for us and i think that song says it beautifully and we'll explore the chapter and um, the 13th chapter of first corinthians today A question for you as we start is, have you ever been unpleasantly surprised by something because it did not turn out to be exactly as it was advertised? Have you ever been disappointed because you got something thinking that it would hold up to what they said it would, and then you realized very soon after it did not? A few years ago now, I was moving um, in with the Tylers. Hey, guys. Okay. Um... And John and Roxana Lawrence were helping me, because they are servants, but also they have a truck, okay? And moving out of an apartment, and the only thing I didn't have that I needed was a fridge. And so I did what any young youth pastor does. I went to Facebook Marketplace, and I said, all right, what fridge is less than $100, okay? Um, And I found this one over on West Adams. It looked pretty good, the pictures. um, Having never bought a fridge, though, I didn't really know what to look for. I was like, "It's." It's rectangular, okay? That's a good start. Uh, they say it works, and so after helping me move that day, John and Roxana were kind enough to go with me to pick up this fridge on, on West Adams, and I text the guy, I'm like, hey man, we're on our way. He's like, well, me and my family, we're still out at the lake, but we'll be there soon. And so I was like, alright, that's kind of weird. So we get there, and I feel bad, because John and Roxana had given up their day to help me. It's dark at this point, right? It's the evening, and so I'm like, well, let's go ahead and load it up, John, so when he gets here, we can just pay, and then we'll be, we'll be good to go. And so I walk up to the porch, and I open up this fridge, and it was like a, a science experiment gone wrong. Okay, there's, there's moldy food in this fr- It's on the front porch. So there's moldy food in there. There's, like, sticky fruit juices. There's, like, old meat blood. It, like, dri- it's gross. Okay, I open it up, and as soon as I open it, like, the scent smacks me in the face. I slammed the door. And I look at John. And I'm like, this isn't it, man. And so I texted the guy. I'm like, hey, like, we're just going to figure something else out. And I found it humorous because he was like, oh, really? Like, what was the problem? <laughs> and I was like, he's like, well, he said it could use a rinse. And I was like, you don't need to rinse that thing. It needs to be like boiled or sunk to the bottom of the ocean or like something needs to happen. And so we ended up going a different direction, but a couple of days later, I get a text from that guy and he sends me pictures of the fridge. He just power washed or whatever. It was nice and clean, but some things can't be unseen, right? I'm like, I'll never look at that fridge the same way. Oftentimes we as people can be kind of like that fridge. All right. We're shiny on the outside from a distance and in a photograph, we look like we can do what we're supposed to. But if you get too close or if you see the interior, we have things that aren't necessarily um, kind, right? They're not, they don't smell great, they don't look great. We're people, we're sinful, we're messy. Our human nature, and I think our, our culture at large, would have us believe that the appearance of something matters more than the substance of something. If it appears to be that way, Then you can get the likes, you can get the follows, you can earn some credibility. And because of two years of a pandemic where we kind of stopped hanging out with people, and because of social media, we kind of build these insulated lives where we can project the best version of ourselves, while the inside of our heart isn't necessarily um, a reflection. It's not an accurate reflection or depiction of what's inside of my heart. As Christians, we face the same temptation. At work, at school, with friends, even here in the church, we constantly are tempted to apply this kind of shiny veneer to our life. Well, how are you doing? Oh, we're doing great. Living the dream, man. And I get it, there's not, there's a time and place for everything. Okay, if someone walked in and was like, hey, I'm Jeff, nice to meet you, and they started like telling me all of their nitty-gritty, that would be odd. But we're a church and we're supposed to be known by each other. So we kind of cover up. We try to conceal issues with our marriage, challenges with raising kids, addiction, diseases, turmoil, strife, our insecurities. We try to cover all this up. And the accuser says, what good are you if you can't even handle your own business? What good are you? Can you imagine if they found out? Can you imagine if they opened the doors of that fridge and they saw how you really were? It's kind of a two-fold thing. The inside matters, but it doesn't always disqualify us because Jesus loves us and he doesn't leave us in that state. Oddly enough, our day and age, our context in the world reminds me a lot of the Greco-Roman one that the Corinthian church, that the early church grew up in. And we're highlighting it on the church in Corinth in this passage. But they were a wealthy A wealthy town and a wealthy region, they were on these two trade routes. Okay, Um, pleasure and power and wealth. They took them, they renamed them, and they worshipped them as gods. In our culture, uh, we do the same thing. We may not have statues or temples to it, but pleasure and power and wealth are all worshipped in our society. And so for the Corinthian church, their culture seeped into their church, because that's what it does. It's a church made up of Corinthian's. And so, for us, we're a church made up of different people. We grew up in central Texas or the United States or wherever we're from. And we take what we grew up with and it meets the church. And we figure out hey, uh, what can stay and what needs to go? We struggle we to keep a clean separation between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And the Corinthian church struggled too. And our text today, like I said, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's Paul's strong reminder for them on how they are to relate to one another. But I think it's a timely reminder for us today as well. Would y'all read verses one through eight with me? Paul says, if I speak in tongues, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. Father, I pray as we work our way through this text and this reminder today that you would speak clearly, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be at work. And God, that you would cut through with the distraction and the mess and the insecurity and the fear. Um, and Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today. And Jesus, I, um, I pray that you're glorified in today's message. I pray that you're made um, mighty in our lives. And, and God, that we go home with more of an appetite for um, your presence and um, your instruction in our, in our lives. We love you so much. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to kind of place this text, we know that the Corinthians were steeped in a culture of honor, not just being nice to each other, but the idea was, can you show the world how much you're worth? And a lot of the way they did this was by um, networking, connecting relationships. If you can be a friend with someone else who's impressive, it makes you a little more impressive. Right, If you can be um, in close, the same circle as someone who's noteworthy, then maybe you catch a little bit of their acclaim. And so they had a desire for social wealth and prominence and friendships that would help elevate that. This lifestyle seeped into their church the same way that our culture seeps into ours. And because of this, the Corinthians were proud people. They were proud because they were taught, make sure people know why you're worthwhile. Make sure people know why you're valuable. It's the culture they brought into it. And so their spiritual giftings in this church, they get saved, they start serving together, and the Holy Spirit um, provides these different gifts within the church, the same way he does today. And they started to use their spiritual gifts as a bit of, of like social currency in the church. And not just, well, like, do you, are you a regular attender, but can you teach? Do you pray in a way that makes other people wish they could pray like that? Do you see how much money they tied? It became this kind of competition because they were a proud people, they were prideful. In his book, Lost Letters of Pergamum, uh, an author named Bruce Longenecker, he paints this picture. Okay, Pergamum is not Corinth, okay, but it's kind of the same region and the same culture. This book's historical fiction, and it paints this picture of a unsaved person in the region of Pergamum, and there's these two different Christian churches, and it's their experience interacting with those two different churches. And I think it's a fascinating picture because it's kind of a, a simplified version of the same uh, struggle we face today. He paints a picture um, of what the churches in that climate might have struggled with, and so in the story, he tells the story of two churches. One of them is marked by reputation, by status, and by honor. He goes to worship with them, and the wealthiest, most prominent people in the town get the best seats. When they break bread together, they get plates, they get a seat at the table, and the less um, impressive of a person you were, the further away you were from the core of their gathering. Maybe you sit outside. Maybe if there's some crumbs left over, you get them, but there's this hierarchy in the church. That was his first encounter with the church. And then it contrasted with another church in the town, that's marked by this sacrificial agape love. When they walked in the door, it didn't matter of their hierarchy, of the reputation, of their power. They had slaves and orphans eating with um, CEOs. Right, they were Christians together before anything else. One church was drawn to the power and to the miracles of Christ. You know, if he can multiply that bread, maybe he can multiply my bread a little bit, right? I want power. I want to claim. The other church was drawn to the sacrificial love and humble service. They desired different things from the life of Christ because they desired different things in life. The difference was in how these two sets of believers approached the church. What can I gain from being here versus what can I give away? How do I benefit from participating in worship with this group of people? Versus, how has God gifted me or gifted us in this season to contribute to what this church is doing? Spiritual gifts exist for the edification of the church and the glorification of Christ, not for us to acquire acclaim or affection. It's about the adoration of God, not the adoration of man. And because we too grew up in a culture um, proud to be American, proud to be Texan, um, it confronts the gospel sometimes, and you say, um, you have this gift for a reason, but it's not to impress other people. It's to serve other people. The heart, the attitude in there matters. And so verses one through three, Paul works through these gifts. He mentions um, the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a, I'm a gong or a claying symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What I love about Paul and his letters is that he knows the people he's writing to, he knows their context. He's likely spent time with them or has enough time spent with them to know their struggles. And so he builds this list. There's a hierarchy here. So he starts with tongues and that was what uh, the Corinthians were impressed with. Okay, they bragged about having speaking the tongues of, of men and angels or a superior language. And Paul puts that first on the list, not because it's most impressive, but he's kind of, I think, throwing a little bit of shade saying, hey, even the small gifts like speaking in tongues, when they're not done the right way, they don't benefit anybody. So he builds his hierarchy and he attacks the foundations of their faulty ways. He says, Hey, you're doing some of the right things, but you're doing them the wrong way. And when you do the right thing, but with the wrong motive or the wrong intention, you don't get the outcome that glorifies God. The motive there matters. So he attacks the foundations of their faulty ways. And by the, construction, by the construction of this list, we see that he doesn't even rank tongues that highly, the speaking of tongues. He builds from tongues to prophecy and, and discerning powers, to faith that moves mountains, to charity and even to martyrdom. The, the hall of fame of, of faith, the things that um, we can aspire to be, he's saying, hey, the most impressive things you can do as a Christian don't hold any weight when they're not done in love. Each of these gifts matters. He's not saying either or. He's saying, hey, when you use the gift that God has given you, and you use it in love, that's when you edify the church. That's when you honor God with it. That's when you elevate your brother or sister. But absent of love, these godly actions are not helpful. When it comes to speaking in tongues, he says that they're noisy. (laughs) They're like symbols. They're abrasive. They're loud. Ten years ago, I worked at a camp, uh, Camp Choye in Livingston, Texas, and camp's an experience. I'll just I'll put it that way. We had a two weeker week. Like, instead of going home on the weekend, this group of kids they stayed for two weeks, and so we had a talent show for them. And there's this young this young man who was like, "Hey, for the talent show, I play drums." Can, I, can, can we play drums? And so the the camp directors were very kind. They were very accommodating. And so from like the uh, far side of camp where we usually have worship, they brought the drum set over to the little building we were in. And I don't know how many drummers we have in the room. Drums are probably one of the harder instruments to move and set up. Like a guitar, you just like, here, play it. But drums, you have to like screw stuff together. And so they took all the time to set this up. And I was excited. I was like, man, I love to watch a talented drummer. And so... The the talent show gets going, and this young man, it's his turn. He's probably like 12 or 13. He goes, and he sits behind the kit and just proceeds to smash stuff (laughs) for like 30 seconds. It's just loud. It's noisy. Um, I don't have the best rhythm, but I couldn't pick up any sort of syncopation or frequency. He just hit stuff for about 30 seconds, and he stood up and threw the stakes in the back of the room, and everyone was like... What do, what do we do with that, you know? Uh, that's your gift when you don't use it in love. It's that noisy symbol. It's the crash. It's the abrasive noise. It doesn't draw me close. Uh, no one walked up to him after camp and said, hey, can I have some lessons sometime? No, it, people, it was like, what do, what do you do with that? It wasn't what we were expecting. A Christian life absent of love can deter others from the message of the cross. Even our good intentions can leave people running away with their hands over their ears if we're not abiding in his love. How we treat other people matters. Verse three, without love, essentially, you gain nothing. There's no benefit, there's no reward. I think for the Corinthians, the temptation was the same as ours as believers, to crave that proximity to crave that closeness to the cross because there's power in it and we know that. So we crave closeness to Jesus, we crave the proximity to it. But we don't necessarily desire proximity to the way of the cross. We love the, the resurrection Sunday and the proclamation and the, the superiority of Christ as we should. There's a road he walked to get there, and he said, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. There will be struggles, there will be suffering, there will be pain. So in the Corinthian church, it appears that these gifts became priority. And at the end of the day, it was really hard for them to let go of their cultural view of relationships. I'll love people who can benefit me i love others who have shown love to me. i love people who are impressive because I want to say, um, I want the the Instagram or the Facebook posts with uh, the impressive, right? We're trying to build this kind of social currency, this wealth, this influence. But Christian love in the church doesn't work that way. No, all the chairs are equal at the table and we're all there only because Christ invited us. So Paul has to remind them that no matter how gifted a teacher, no matter how powerful someone is of a prayer, no matter how spiritual a sage or how impressive um, their knowledge of God's word, that without love, it's nothing. In fact, it could even be um, abrasive. It could be hard to hear. It could leave people covering their ears because they don't know what to do with it. So the idea here is that we must constantly assess ourselves and our love. We must constantly look within, ask the Holy Spirit to search us. Okay, the people close to us, we have to evaluate those relationships and see, is Christ-like love something I just know about? Is it something I'm a recipient of? And is there a blockage? Why can I not love other people that way? We have to test it. We have to assess these things. You see, as I mentioned earlier, we love to procure these impressive appearances because they still reflect well on ourselves. I mean, I grew up a church kid. I know how it works. The right answers at the right time. We know how to have this appearance, right? We want to look the part. We want, to be, uh, we want people to be proud of us. And you say, hey, even the right gift without the love of Christ, you're missing it. You don't have the fullness of it. It can even be selfish and self-seeking. And so today, for us, in our lives, agape love, the love of Christ, will always be rooted in humility. And the reason it has to be rooted in humility is because if it's from Christ, it's by Christ, and it's for Christ. All right, so the only reason I have access to it at all is because Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, puts that into my life. All right, it's from Christ, okay? And by some power of his love for us, um, he gives us permission uh, to be conduits of it. It's from Christ, it's by Christ. And guess what? When it adds to the church, when it builds up those around us, when um, it's part of our our mission, part of our our testimony to the world around us, we honor Christ for that because we elevate his, his name in the world. It's always... In humility, because it's from Christ, it's by Christ, and it's for Christ. What I'm trying to say is that the Christian in the room, you can do all of the right things and still miss it. In 2 Timothy um, chapter three, verse five, it says that these people had the appearance of godliness, but they denied its power. And then he says, to avoid such people. We spend so much time concerned with our appearance and if we're fitting the part. But appearance is only a, a, a picture of its substance, okay? Like that fridge that I tried to buy. The outside can be shiny, the inside can be full of, of filth, it can be full of moldy food. And so appearance only matters when it's an accurate reflection of the substance within. So don't let the appearance of something convince you of its substance. Seek authenticity. In your own life and in life with other people, don't just take it at face value. If you have the relationship, if you have the love with them, ask them hard questions. One of my least favorite and most important rounds of golf ever... All right, stick with me, okay? It's not really a golf story. Uh my good friend Kyle Tanner asked me a really hard question and I did not like it. (laughs) I don't remember the rest. I just remember being mad because he asked me, but he said, hey, um, I know the outside looks good, but what's going on on the inside? And it's like, where do you get on, (laughs) you know? Um, But I need that. We need that from each other. And so don't let the appearance of something convince you of its substance. Cultivate those relationships and ask honest questions. And recognize that it's a two-way street. I think part of the reason that we don't ask hard questions is because we know, man, if I if I ask Kyle that question, he has permission to ask me the same one. And it creates this reciprocity, and we don't want that, right? No, like let's just both be shiny fridges from a distance, okay? Seek authenticity. And so Paul finishes up here, verses four through eight. Talking about the substance of love, not the appearance of giftedness, but the substance of love. He says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You know, often um, throw it out there. Where do you usually hear this passage of scripture? Weddings. Yeah. Uh, it's a great wedding passage. And I say it's a little more romantic and sweet when it's someone that you got to pick. You say, hey, I will, I will uphold these vows. But Paul isn't saying, hey, to the person you want to spend the rest of your life with, this is what love looks like. He says, hey, to the person in your life right now that you cannot stand... This is what love looks like. It's more fun at weddings, okay? Uh, it's this lofty, this beautiful thing, but it's not just a resolution for committed couples. No, it's a command. It's the essence of Christian community. It's the love of Christ embodied among us. Theologian Charles Urban states that love may be difficult to define, but it is not difficult to discern. Paul attempts no definition, analysis, or description. He pictures love in action. He shows what it does and what it feels and what it refrains from doing. He records the ways in which it manifests itself today. So then, for us, what is this love? Love is patient. It's in no rush. It's willing to walk slowly and honor the person and the moment. So often in relationships... We hate to to walk slow. We hate to work through struggles, um, either understand it and correct your behavior, or we have to figure something else out. But love is patient. It doesn't mean love puts up with anything, okay? It doesn't mean, what it means is, hey, I will walk with you through this. We will take our time. Love is patient. Love is kind. The sharp edges are rubbed smooth by adequate time spent with the Father. His kindness shapes us, and I can know or I'm able to be kind because I know the source of kindness. I'm able to be patient because I know the source of patience. Love does not envy or boast, it's not self seeking or self focused. This love is not arrogant or rude, it doesn't have to get its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful, it can't be. If it's patient, and if it's kind, it can't be irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. This love cares for life and others the same way that the Lord does. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The love of Christ never fails. His love never ends, and his love never loses. That's a powerful love. Dr. Tom Constable, a long-time professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, says this in his commentary regarding this this passage. He says, Love does not deal with other people in a way that injures their dignity. It does not insist on having its own way, nor does it put its own interests before the needs of others. It is not irritable or touchy, but it absorbs offenses, insults, and inconveniences for the sake of the welfare of others. It does not keep a record of offenses received in order to pay them back. So if this is what real Christ-like love is, then how often am I guilty of peddling counterfeit versions? How often do I call something Christ-like love, but really the substance doesn't match the appearance? It's got the label on it, but that's not what it really is. What may appear as love on the surface can really just be concealed manipulation, coercion, self-promotion, abuse, or even bullying. Terrible things happen to people every day in the name of love. Paul tells us about the qualities and the essence of love so that we can evaluate our own heart and our own relationships. Not to assess other people, not to cast broadly to you guys and say, hey, y'all are doing it wrong, but it's a mirror for me. To look at and say, hey, um, this is what I call love in my life. Does it match up with what the love of Christ looks like? This is what I say is loving in my relationships, but does it match up with how Christ loves us? I really don't think the Lord wants anyone to have that Facebook fridge experience with his people, okay? They don't want to advertise one thing and then show up and experience something entirely different so when someone opens the doors of a memorial, when a visitor walks in, they see our website and our sign that says, love God, love others, and serve the world. Is that what they're getting? We have to hold up this mirror, this picture, the quality, the essence of Jesus' love for us, and we can kind of see where we're feeling a little selfish, where there's a blockage, where something's not working the way it's supposed to. So in your life, is it as advertised? Or when people get close, do they see a difference? Does the substance of your heart match the surface of your life? People of God recognize that the state of the heart means more to God than the stature of the person. The state of your heart means more to God than what you accomplish or do, even if they're things for the church. Substance is greater than appearance. We know the story in in 1 Samuel of God calling David to be king. He sends Samuel out to search, and um, there's the row of brothers, and of course, the king's got to be the tallest, strongest, most handsome and intelligent one, right? And there's this passage where um, in verse 7, God says, hey, I don't look at the things that people look at. You're looking at, hey, can this guy win favor with people? Is he charming? Will people follow him? Does he look strong enough to be a good fighter? Right? You can imagine what you would want your king to look like. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, um, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When I read this verse for the first time in high school, it terrified me (laughs) because I knew I had worked up this appearance of someone who was godly or someone who cared about the things that God cares about. But I recognized my heart wasn't, uh, there wasn't congruence there. There's a separation and I had it concealed. So I read this verse and it was a very sobering reminder that, hey, um, I can impress him or ho- her or this group of people or whoever with my appearance or how things appear to be, um, but the most important person doesn't look at your appearance, they look at your heart. God looks at your heart and he says, hey, this is what I care about. When we prioritize a person's status over their life, when we, when we prioritize the status of their life over the substance of their heart, we make the same mistake as the Corinthians. We fall in the same trap of looking at people's appearance versus the substance of who they are. Our love church needs an assessment. It needs to be tested. I know school around the corner. We don't want to talk about test yet. Okay. Uh, But test is used in a lot of different ways, right? If you cook food, um, you might do a taste test, right? As to make sure it's something you want to serve to other people. All right, we've got a lot of students who have started driving this year. And when you go to drive, they have a test for you. Because they don't let just anybody drive, right? Okay. Um, No, there's a test. There's an assessment there. We don't always enjoy them, but tests are helpful because they reveal what's really there. If you knew me in college, you knew that I had some tests I was proud of and some tests that I really wasn't, okay? But what, every time they revealed how much of the material I actually knew. They reveal what's really there. And so um, the, a couple weeks ago, Ross Allen was teaching our, our students um, our Sunday school class. And I wrote down these questions in response to what he was teaching. Um, I think it was Second John that day. And so for us, um, how can we test our love? I think these are some good reflection questions. Does it seek their welfare more than your preference or desire? Because if it's about your preference or your desire, it may not be love. Does it exist even when they do not behave or live how you expect them to? Because Christ like love um, is not conditional. Does your love exist even when they do not behave or live how you expect them to? Lastly, does it draw them closer? Or does it draw me closer to them and the heart of God? Or does it create distance and space for me to belittle them? Love is not a platform for you to stand on to look down on other people. When in doubt, we must look to Christ and his example. How has he demonstrated his love for you? Has he been patient with you? He's been patient with me. Has he been kind? Has he been envious or proud? He hasn't. Has he been impatient or rude? Never. Has he been resentful? No. He always rejoices in the truth. He always walks with me. He bears all things, he believes all things, he hopes all things, and he endures all things. And as the band comes back up and we have a time to respond to the scripture today in worship. I want to say, in your life and in your relationships, don't call it the love of Christ unless it truly is. Don't give somebody a reason to say the love of Christ is not all of these things. Because the love of Jesus is always patient. It's always kind. Does the love in your life, does it look like his love? Does it have the same aroma? Does it elevate others and does it draw them close? Because that's what the love of Christ does. My giftings or my effort on my own is a noisy gong, it's a clanging symbol, and it pushes people away. It gives them no reason to step closer, to investigate, to have curiosity. But when you love someone and they've given you no reason to do it, there's a spark of curiosity. When you embrace someone when they would not embrace you in return, it causes this question. Do I see dignity in the faces of those that the world has cast aside? Because Jesus does. The truth of the matter is, we only know this love because Jesus has demonstrated it for us first. Right? We only know it because he has shown it to us first. He has shown us, and in doing so, by the power of his spirit, we have an opportunity to love the people in our lives that way. And so... My invitation to you today is to to reflect on your life and your relationships. Let the Holy Spirit search you and see. Has the love in your life, the love that you've given, has it been more of a burden and a bludgeon to those around you? Sometimes mine is. That's okay, we can repent. We can turn away. We can ask Jesus, um, hey, can we trade this counterfeit love for the real thing cuz I want to share that with the people around me. His love is patient and his love is kind. Maybe you've never really known or experienced a love that was patient and kind. I know we all grew up in different um, families and different homes. We have different experiences. So maybe you've never known a love that was patient, that was kind. and Maybe you've never known a love that didn't manipulate, intimidate, or bully you. Well, today, I want you to know that in Jesus, you can. You absolutely can. His love comes with no conditions, and his love never fails. I want to invite you to that today. What will your response be? You know, if you want to commit to this congregation... If you want to grab hold and say, hey, um, Lord, why do you have us here? And how can we serve and add to your work at Memorial? Come forward. I'd love to talk with you. If you need to give your life to the Lord, because you never have, if you need to receive that unconditional love, His love is patient, His love is kind. It's not based on your performance or your status or what you did last night, He gives it freely. And if you need to follow the Lord in baptism or if you feel called to vocational ministry and you want to proclaim that or you need to, um, you want to receive that call, if you just need prayer, come forward, we'd love to pray with you. You guys go ahead and stand and in obedience, would you move? Would you respond? And would you pray? Father, as we enter this time of worship, I just pray that you would give us boldness to respond to the, um, the initiation, to the, the prodding of your spirit. God, I pray that we wouldn't um, push off obedience or confession another week. I pray that um, this morning right now that you would uh, bring that forth in our heart and in our minds. And I pray that uh, you would just continue to work in and refine this congregation, this body of believers. And Lord, that every day would our love be more and more like your agape love. Would we look out for others and not our own interest? Would it be selfless? Would it be um, a reflection of who you are? Jesus, thank you for loving me so patiently, for being so kind, Lord, and for walking with me. We love you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.